Hi, this is Lynette from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Back Matter Publishing Industry Podcast, I'll be talking with Orna Ross. Headquartered in London, Orna is an award-winning author and poet and the founder-director of the Alliance of Independent Authors, a popular and influential professional association for independent authors. In addition to all of her writing, Orna is a popular speaker and teacher who does a lot of work helping authors and other creative printers develop their skills, not only as writers and creators generally, but also as people managing serious businesses and seeking growth. In this interview, we're going to talk about Orna's career, the Alliance of Independent Authors, her go creative series and some of the issues of the day in the publishing world. You can follow Orna on Twitter at Orna Ross and learn more about her and her work at ornaross.com. I also highly recommend to everyone listening um, the uh, Ask Ally self-publishing advice podcast salon um, where you can uh, listen to Orna's monthly um, podcast episodes that she does with uh, the amazing Joanna Penn. Uh, So thank you, Orna, for being on the Back Matter podcast. My pleasure, Lynn. Thanks for having me. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for what I call their origin stories. Um, And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up. I know from your bio that it's a few different places uh, and and how you eventually made your way into the world of writing and publishing. Sure. And well, I think, you know, once I've said a sentence or two, your listeners are going to know I grew up in Ireland. (laughs) And so I grew up in the southeast of Ireland, um, born kind of mid last century, which makes me sound very ancient. And I suppose I am. Um, And Ireland was a very different place then. And I was born in rural Ireland and um, grew up there and convent boarding school and all of that kind of thing. Always wanted to write, always felt like I, you know, I was zoomed in from somewhere else. (laughs) I just, you know, I was a sort of an imaginative child growing up in a business driven family. I was a girl among boys. I was um, a reader among sports lovers. I just, uh, you know, I don't know where I came from. (laughs) And so books were definitely a, sort of an escape for me and a, a view of other lives, other ways to live, other ways to be. And I was, you know, was very kind of romantic about poetry and literature of all kinds. So at that time, I mean, in Ireland, you know, Yeats, Shaw, Beckett, um, the great string of Nobel laureates, they're on tea towels, they're on posters, they're, you know, all these dead white males, that, that's what a writer was. So I didn't even actually think it was something I could even begin to think about doing. I didn't even allow myself to want to be a writer, to be honest. I The most I could imagine was teaching English literature to kids. So that's what I trained to do, did an English lit degree. Um, and eventually, you know, the fact that I did actually want to be a writer surfaced and eventually became um, something I couldn't ignore. So I first went into journalism and then from journalism into fiction and from fiction in from trade published fiction first with a small feminist press in Ireland and then um, with a a large corporate publisher Penguin in London and uh, from there into self-publishing so that's kind of my trajectory and um, you ran a literary agency for a time yeah, I like most writers, like most creatives, I've done a lot of things <laughs> over, over the years. You know, I think you often see that bio, don't you, for on, on a, a writer's, you know, was a barmaid, and I've done all that kind of thing. 
But from sort of the mid 1980s, late 1980s, I've made my living in the written word in some shape or form. So all through that writing, but never writing in the sort of genre that was going to to make a living, you know. So always supplementing that with teaching and or other activities. And one of the things I did in Dublin at one time was run a writing school and we had a lot of very talented writers who were getting offers from publishers and the contracts were just awful, appalling, really, really bad and um, disgraceful in my mind. So I took myself off to London and learned about contracts and how to and just ended up representing those authors informally at first. And then we, we did run an agency for a while. But it wasn't really me. I did. I liked the part of representing authors, but I didn't really like the part of reading contracts and pouring over detail and all that kind of stuff. So I did leave that behind. But it was work that I took into the Alliance of Independent Authors then some years later. Um, in fact, founding the Alliance of Independent Authors seemed to bring everything I had ever done in my previous life together into one role and and um, that was one of it so you know I'm still representing authors but in a very different way and in a way that suits me much better and I'm very glad to have had that time though it was a real eye-opener into the end I felt I got to know the industry in in a way that I never would have known it as a writer. And has the role of literary agent changed in the last, let's say, decade since, um, say, the introduction of, of the Kindle and, and Amazon? Yes, I, I, I definitely feel that it has. Um, it's interesting. Just this morning, I was giving evidence to the UK um, all-party group here on um, – there is an all-party writers group – parliamentary writers group and they are doing an inquiry at the moment into author earnings and I was giving evidence on a panel with a representative from the Association of Authors Agents and the Publishers Association and it was interesting listening to the agent talking about um, her writers as she called them and and you know how, where she sees her role now I, I my own sense is that agents are looking for a role and more than before you know that they can see a situation where they're the way in which they were that sort of um bridge between author and publisher has to be changing in a situation where authors themselves are developing the skills and the tools to represent themselves in a, in, in a much better way and digital publishing generally has fragmented the hold that a number of professionals within the industry have had on the funnel of information, if you like. So, yeah, I, th- I think it's changing hugely. And then, of course, you have author, uh, sorry, agent, um, rep- what's it called? Agent Assisted Self-Publishing, yeah, AASP, which is um, in some cases is very useful to an author who maybe doesn't want to get to grips with things themselves. But in some cases, at the, at the more problematic end of the, the spectrum, we have agents that are essentially hoovering up rights just for a morning's work of putting up a book on the various platforms, you know, or maybe only one platform. Um, and that's something we've come across in the Alliance a bit and, and obviously not something that we think is, is okay. On that, on that subject, actually, I've got, a, I've got a couple of questions, one of which is that you made a big career change in 2011 when you got the rights to your work back from your publisher. Yes. And I was wondering if you can talk a little bit, just tell, tell us a little bit about that story. How, did, how does one go about getting rights back? And I believe it might have been from, from Penguin. 
Yes, it was Penguin. Um, well, it was because I had been a literary agent. I was very lucky. I had an excellent rights reversion clause and it's one of the most important clauses in a contract and it's one of those clauses that authors are not aware of at all. So very often in contracts, now Penguin has a, has a very good boilerplate contract, so there's no question that Penguin would do this, but there are um, publishing contracts where there is no, rever- no reversion clause or the reversion clause is worded in such a way that authors don't understand it, that, you know, if even one book remains in print ever um, or if there are ebooks there uh, which now on most titles should be an ebook and though not all are but um, you know if my point being if a book exists in any shape or form um, the writer can't and, and it's turning has sold even one copy in the last however long you know the, the writer is not entitled to get their rights back so my rights reversion clause was good and Penguin is a, um, Penguin Random House is a very you know good company and, and and fair decent and reasonable so you know we it happened and I, I was able to make it happen it's it's very interesting though. It's a much bigger. My story, if you like, has a, a much wider kind of um, relevance, I think, and to what has happened since, and to why I was so excited by self-publishing when I saw it um, appear on the landscape. So. I was very lucky. I got a very good two-book deal with Penguin. Um, but I had been a literary agent. I had represented many authors. I knew a lot about the business. I had actually self-published a book very successfully in Ireland at a time where people didn't really tend to do that, a book in print through the bookstores and had done you know, um, quite well with that gone into a few extra printings so I knew a lot about the industry but I was not welcome or wanted at any conversation where anything was being decided at a business level my metadata my cover you know my presentation to the marketplace all of that I felt was badly handled um, at the time there was a phenomenon called uh, chiclet which you may remember and or you're probably far too young um, but it Essentially, they wanted to slot me into that. And while that was a short term strategy that did make the book a bestseller, I didn't want that. I really wanted to slowly build readers over time and, you know, for develop a, a, a sort of um, yeah, a sustainable model, if you like. So anyway, on we went and it just went from bad to worse. And the next book was even worse. So they didn't, it was about the poet W.B. Yeats and his muse and his name wasn't even on the cover, you know. So they were just afraid all the time of frightening away these girl readers who would be petrified by anything that might be even vaguely serious. And the covers were, you know, headless women and backless dresses and they were beautiful to look at. But I just felt they were such a mismatch for the content that I'm quite sure readers who were attracted on the cover were very disappointed with and, what uh, they and and pink if i if i gather the story correctly <laughs> the covers i mean first one was neon pink yes yes and as i have said many times i am the anti-pink <laughs> so you know it was difficult and and it became more difficult and really you know where do you go when it's not working out with penguin do you know where do you what's your next step as an author then um, and that's where I was. And I also, at the same time as this was happening, I got cancer, actually. And so I 
just took a step back. I just said, what's going on? I don't, you know, life just seemed to have gone a bit crazy. So I took a step back and when I, and because also I had reaction to treatment and stuff like that, when I came back to to working life um, and knew I wanted to kind of go again. I We had moved to London as a family from Dublin and um, there was this thing called self-publishing and I took a look and thought, you know, not really for me, but then I thought, well, it's kind of intriguing. So I just did a chapbook of poetry and put that out just as an experiment because I'm not very technical and that, I found that quite, you know, I'll have to learn about ebooks and what it, what on earth is an ePub and, you know, what's a Moby and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, I did it and immediately then as I did it and saw, well, people bought it, first of all, um, I was just, I could immediately see this changed everything because if I could get my rights back uh, to my various titles and also I had ideas now because I have been, hadn't really been writing and publishing, I had lots of ideas about things I wanted to write about. Um, I could see that over time I could, I could do for myself what I had hoped they would do for me so that I, you know, I could build a business book by book, asset by asset, step by step in a way that just isn't possible when somebody else owns your metadata, somebody else, uh, you know, has the channel to market, somebody else has, you're not in business in under that model. You're more like an employee. And in some cases, you're like a piece worker. You know, you're just at home churning out the content and not being paid very well at all for it. So that's what I did. And then I was looking for an association to join who would, you know, uh, because I'm a bit of a joiner and uh, there wasn't one doing the job that I could see. And it just began to grow as a, as a, you know, somebody really needs to do this. And then I thought, okay, I'll do it. And so I did. Uh, you reminded me there of something I uh, picked up on as kind of a theme uh, in your in your writing when I was researching for this interview, which was uh, about uh, doing things for yourself yourself and how um, the you talk about the education system that we have, for example, is based on kind of an industrial age model, which I don't I didn't I didn't sort of go too deeply into that. But, you know, it, it sort of gave me a little bit of a flavor for other things I discovered where you talk about how um, often I, authors can they just take the contract that they're offered, partly because they're they're conditioned to feel things like gratitude um, and things like that, um, and and then often when it comes to the the conduct of their business, even even when they become self-published authors, sometimes their people seem kind of conditioned to not be as proactive as the, as they ought to be, and there's all kinds of barriers in place. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, about how when you're when you're talking to people, you're trying to teach them how to become you know, creative and self-directed. How do you get them through through that conditioning? Yeah, I mean, there are a number of different approaches, but you're absolutely right. We are, I mean, did you know that our education system was actually devised for the Prussian army? And that's where it originally, you know, the way we are taught in desks with, you know, obedience being number one and uniformity and all of that, that it was actually the in, in Prussia in the late 19th century, a group of Americans thought, you know, visited, thought that was, wow, amazing, brought it to the States. And from the States, it was exported around the world and became the way that we teach people. And it's so unsuitable for today. 
you know, we're teaching kids to sit still and listen to facts that they can Google in five seconds. And we can see that the lack of connection there. And But anyway, that's, as you say, let's not go too deeply into that. But there is a great unlearning that has to happen then. And, and of course, for authors, what you had on top of that was a system whereby a tiny minority of people got through the gateway called publishing. And we, we came to actually think that publishing was somebody else saying you're good enough. Whereas actually publishing is, is seven processes that you need to get right. Editorial, design, distribution, marketing, promotion, and so on. That's what publishing is. If that's done well, then you're published well. And if, that, if any of that is done badly, then you're not published so well. And it is as simple as that. But we have come to think that it's about validation. It's about being able to tell the folks I've been published. It's about the size of an advance or, you know, we've we've got very mixed up in that. And I've seen authors with, with this terrible publish me, please, you know, absolute anxiety and despair that nobody will publish them. And it, it has within the community what I'm witnessing is in the 10 years that we've had uh, widespread digital self-publishing now, there is a growth in confidence where that sort of mindset is beginning to fall away. Not for everybody. It's still, it's still there to some degree. And there has also been a paternalism in the publishing industry, which is very much about, you know, you go do the writing, dear, and we look after the money stuff over here. And you know, sentences like writers want to write, they don't want to publish, they don't want to know about business and so on. True in some cases, but not taking into account the fact that we're being trained to be like that. And who's it, who, you know, who does that benefit? Does it actually benefit the author to be like that? You know, so first of all, encouraging people to think about their own mindset, their own assumptions, their own presumptions and to question them. So fine if you do come back around to saying, no, actually, I don't want to get involved in publishing and I do want somebody to look after all of that so I can be free to write. That's fine if, if it is a conscious decision. But where it's largely unconscious and arising out of a sense of inadequacy and, oh, you know, that's not my role, then that's something quite different. So, oh, first of all, and then it's about giving people permission. It's amazing sometimes when you say to them, well, actually, you can now, you know, you can go do it. How many people actually go, gosh, I can. I can. OK, let's let's do it kind of thing. So there is that whole thing of just changing people's mindset with ideas. But then there is also, you know, to be creative and to approach business in a creative way means doing things differently. And it's not business as usual. There are certain things that we need as as we need to balance the creator self, the manager self and the entrepreneurial self. Those three roles have to be followed through if we're going to have um, business success. And there is a bit of work there in understanding that and becoming intentional about the three of them and how they work together. But again, once that understanding is in place, authors are very smart they're very clever people in the main and they take to it uh, pretty quickly. And this community has been on the learning curve of its life in the last 10 years and has responded incredibly well and is, is changing. You know, it's a transformation that we're seeing in this community. Um, speaking of 
uh, transformation and paternalism. Um, uh, I've got a, I've got a question that I before this interview I, I I sort of warned you that I'd talk to you about politics. Um, but before before we move on to that, I just wanted to mention that you you're you reminded me of a couple of uh, stories that I have about the education system. I did not know that um, it's a Prussia, it was a Prussian model imported from the United States that has us sitting in sitting in desks. But um, when I was in my undergraduate years, I had a German professor who was both German and a professor of German um, who I wasn't getting along with, and I tried to you know get along with him by asking about the you know root the roots of words like education and things like that and he said and I won't do the accent although I'm desperately tempted to but don't go on <laughs> no I can't I can't but he said uh he said um some people think that education is like you have a block of stone and you're trying to bring out the shape that's already there that's wrong it's the opposite you're imposing the shape on the stone <laughs> um we, we, we continued to not get along I'm um, just gonna See what guys didn't get along. No, um, but but you also reminded me of uh, an interesting. I don't know very much about the history of education, but when Adam Smith was writing about the idea that there should be sort of mass education for all of society, what he was the reason he was motivated to do that was he was looking at this industrial transformation that was happening and thinking about the sort of deprived lives that people would have stuck in these factories all day doing the same thing over and over again. And the idea of public education was actually to give people the foundation to have richer lives socially and intellectually and politically. Um, and the transformation of education from you know that original idea of, of mass education to job training um, is something that I do that I do think about, and and you know along with that the idea of obedience it's a real it's a real perversion of what people were actually thinking when they were really thinking about what's the reason to educate people it wasn't it wasn't to make you a better worker or you know train you to follow orders it was it was quite the opposite um, but uh, but on on that on that wider subject of paternalism I know you write a little bit about your politics um, in on your website in your bio and I know that you studied um, women's studies uh, in the nineties and uh, one of the things I like to do uh, when I'm interviewing people is if they if they have say some local knowledge that the rest of us might have read about from far away uh, to tap into that and so I wanted to ask you a little bit about Irish politics what's what's been happening in Ireland the rest of us have been seeing you know headlines about referendums on things like um, well blas I don't know if there's a referendum but there's you know talk about blasphemy laws uh, there was a big referendum on gay marriage I know things have been changing about abortion as well uh, can you can you just give us a little bit of your perspective on what's what's happened in Ireland in the last 30 years and what are the forces driving change there yeah a, a fantastic generation of young people I think uh, is is really the driving force but um, I mean, I love millennials. I just think they're amazing. <laughs> and Irish millennials are just a different breed to to what I grew up with. So, you know, my kids and I have this. My kids are in their 20s and we have these conversations. I grew up in a world that is just so foreign to them. So, yes, I mean, I never thought I would see the day that Ireland would be the first country to actually vote in gay marriage by popular referendum. And um, it's extraordinary to me and, and absolutely thrilling in every way. But the big one, the really huge one, and that, that was huge and absolutely wonderful. Um, but to the recent um, abortion referendum. I was very involved in abortion politics in, in the 80s and 90s and 
um, the amount of suffering, unnecessary suffering, and the I, you know a lot of people didn't realise just how that that um, constitutional law came into the Irish Constitution that it was actually a group of um, extreme Roman Catholics, Opus Dei, you know, Dan Brown stuff, um, along with some conservative-minded uh, politicals in the Irish government just set about putting this constitutional referendum in and everybody of sane and liberal mind at the time said this is going to cause horrendous suffering. It is a, It is just bad law. And so it turned out to be we had, you know, a 14 year old girl who had been raped and sexually abused was actually interned in the country and not allowed to leave the country because her parents were going to bring her for an abortion. And that was in the 90s. And we all took to the streets and it was so divisive. It really was a referenda are anyway, but it, it was terrible and um, so much bitterness, so much anti, uh, you know, and sexism doesn't even begin to describe it, fear of the female, you know, uh, in its rawest shape. And uh, women afraid, stigmatized, you know, made to be ashamed of all sorts of things. And I remember a time in Ireland when you couldn't purchase uh, condoms, you know, that was against the the law you literally couldn't purchase condoms um and then obviously things like contraceptive bill and all of that so to see it one generation later just completely transform and ireland now is almost as liberal a country as any in europe and it's interesting of course that we're seeing the same sort of backlash um, that's happening in, in the US is also becoming live as a recent presidential candidate who is stirring up the same sorts of fears and things and you always have that backlash coming in but nonetheless it has made me so happy to see the transformation that has happened in Ireland over the last um, 10 years in particular Do you think things could go backwards? Things can always go backwards I um, mean history, history is steps forward and then back and then forward again. That's, that's just history. On, on that note, actually, uh, you mentioned earlier you were, you were talking, you were advising a committee about author earnings. Um, and I wanted to ask you about Brexit. Um, is that having an impact on people in the book publishing world in the UK? Yes, yeah, so one of the one of the um, topics that was of most concern today was Brexit and, and the implications of Brexit. And of course, it's like gazing into a cave; nobody knows what it's going to to bring or or to be. But um, you you know, the publishing world carved copyright up a um, hundred years ago between the US and the UK, really, <laughs> a sort of a gentleman's agreement. Other countries are are very much bound by the gentleman's agreement that that has pertained there across the world. So in, there are lots of changes that are happening that have nothing to do with Brexit and to do with other countries like India and so on, producing um, cheap print books and things are about to change I think it's it's one strand in a, in a big braid of lots of different factors that are changing things yeah so but there is no doubt Brexit will have an effect what that effect will be it's too soon to say uh, while we're on the topic of politics um, uh, the EU is undergoing copyright reform uh, at the moment um, controversially there's uh, something called article 13 um, which is represented with the 
you know, cartoon image of an internet filter, uh, which is something that has a lot of people uh, talking. Um, and and, and there seemed, there's a little bit of a divide, I think, sometimes between people who might be in the kind of content creation world and people in the technology side of things. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, I mean, maybe maybe uh, if, if this is something that you, you want to talk about, if you could explain maybe a little bit about what Article 13 is and whether you think um, its application will help creatives earn more money. I, uh, this is one of the questions where if I'd known you were going to ask me, I would have researched a little bit more carefully just in terms of giving the right definition. So I wouldn't be able to define it straight off. But what I can say is that independent authors are kind of caught in the middle here. It's, it's, it's interesting. There's a, there's a big conversation happening and not a lot of people thinking about the author as author. So there's corporate publishing, which is trying to protect its version of copyright. And of course, copyright is the law on which our living rests. Without it, we have no dignity as creators. We have no way of actually earning earning money. And so copyright protection is extremely important for authors. On the other side of the fence, as you rightly say, there are those who feel that the Internet and other forms of of freedom of of communication and speech and all sorts of other things um, are are going to be impacted upon in a negative way. And there is no doubt that it will lead to the sort of false legality that we've had recently with GDPR, you know, where you've got um, and authors are going to be questioned about their rights and whether they are the rights holder and so on much more than they have. And we see this already in Amazon and some of the other platforms where there is quite um, rigorous questioning around um, copyright holding and so on. So it's got it's all going to add up to a bit of a headache for authors. Um, we're not it's not fully through yet, um, but it's likely to to carry, I think. And um, it is another situation. The EU has a number of times um, tried to curtail or tackle the growing power of large digital corporations like Amazon, Google, and so on, and in the doing hurt the livelihoods of independent authors. So their VAT legislation will be one example of that, where they are, they are insisting that the purchaser of um, a product, first of all, there's VAT on ebooks, and there isn't in print in lots of, of the member states, but um, they're insisting that VAT must be paid um, in the country of purchase, which is something that's just impossible for a small business, small indie author business to manage. And so the community has responded by geo-blocking most of those countries and just not selling in those countries. When that legislation was being drawn up, nobody was thinking about the digital micro-enterprise, which is now probably one of the most uh, rapidly growing sectors in most developed economies right now. So that will be my overall point is we're not even at the table. We're not even, ha- we're not even part of the discussion and today in the UK was the first time that independent authors had a voice in, you know, in that committee room. And, you know, we need more. We need to be there. We need to be talking about things from our perspective. Yeah, that, that gives me a great opportunity uh, to move on to the next part of the interview where we talk about uh, your work, your founding on, uh, of the Alliance of Independent Authors in 2012 and your work on it. Before before we do do that, though, I just wanted to take the opportunity to say, I mean, we had to deal with the VAT issue. Um, and for those who don't know, the way 
the system works is that if someone buys something from you, you have to get you have to try to get three pieces of information, one of which is their IP address. So where are they on the internet? Where where are they physically where they are accessing the internet? Um, the second thing is the country associated with the payment option that they're using. So like, where's their credit card from? Um, and the third thing is then if they select a country from a dropdown, and if two of those things match, then you have to apply the appropriate um, tax rule for that place. And if that place is, you know, South Africa, then you don't have to do anything. If that place is an EU country where VAT applies, then you have to charge VAT. Um, what it means for members of EU countries is that if you have, say, uh, a French credit card and you're buying a book in the United States, but you you have to say, well, I'm from France, that's, you know, and you choose that from the drop down, then you have to pay French VAT, even though you're buying a book in the United States. And so it actually means that your country sale tax is now something that you carry around with you all over the world. And it's, I'm not necessarily complaining about that, but there's, there's all kinds of strange things that happen when these kinds of rules are that are historically place-based are applied on the internet. And it can become quite a, quite a perverted um, space to try to navigate. Um, and a major headache. And a major headache uh, for everybody. Um, uh, uh, but moving on maybe to more positive things, um, the Alliance of Independent Authors uh, now has now has a voice speaking to, to uh, important committees. Um, and the reason it has <laughs> that is because you, you founded it in 2012. Uh, and I was wondering if you could talk at the London Book Fair, I, as I gather, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the Alliance of Indep Independent Authors is and what motivated you to get it going and, and how you got it going. Yeah, well... I just, um, what it is, is a professional association for the independent author, the, the author publisher who wants to make a living from their writing. We have four member categories. Uh, one is for somebody who's preparing to self-publish. So in order to be a member of the Alliance, you have to either have self-published a book or be in the act of doing so. And so we have an associate membership for those who are kind of preparing to self-publish and then author, standard author membership for those who have self-published at least one book and a professional membership for those who have sold more than 50,000 books in the last two years or equivalent page reads on Kindle or whatever. And uh, then we have a fourth category, which um, great, a good author services can become a partner member like yourself of the Alliance. So um, that's the way it, it works. So the reason there is partner membership there is from the start, we saw that it was very important to get good author services so back then even more so than now though it still is a problem of course there were a lot of rogue services as as and as self-publishing has kind of become more popular there are constantly services that are offering um things at inflated prices or poor services or whatever so one of our roles is is as a betting agent to um, say, you know, yes, you can trust this company or no, this is one to kind of um, watch. So our mission was ethics in, in self-publishing. And that's on both sides. We have an ethical author campaign as well as an ethical partner campaign. 
um, ethics and excellence in self-publishing. So that's the other big concern that everybody always has about self-publishing is what about this tsunami of crap, as somebody called it once upon a time, and it stuck. Um, so our members are encouraged to go through the seven stages of publishing uh, editorial with a, a serious emphasis on editorial and, and to learn and to educate themselves about how to publish well. And that's a big part of our remit is that education and the, what we were talking about earlier, the unlearning you need to do in order to choose yourself, go out there, be creative and look at, you know, biz, different business models, different kinds of writing that suit you to publish widely across a range of formats to meet the reader or the listener now, indeed, because audiobooks are so popular and, you know, really uh, indies are very well placed within audio as well to meet the, uh, you know meet the consumer wherever they are and however they want to consume your your content so yes using words like consume and content even is a bit of a learning curve and we, we can have resistance to these kinds of things and of course a lot of authors don't realize that the second you sell a book on Amazon the day you sell your first book on Amazon or Kobo or Ingram Spark or Apple or wherever it is or through your own website you've gone into business you have, whether you like it or not, become a business person. And so just, to, and you become a publisher and then you can be a bad one or you can be a good one. And that's the challenge. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Uh, when I was um, researching for this interview, I came across some great references you have to how, uh, the creativity side of what you're doing, uh, applies to the business as well. Not, not, not just to the writing, but you can actually take that creative spirit that you have and you can use it to help uh, manage and grow your business. Um, and I was Absolutely. wondering, yeah, how, how, how do you sort of help nudge people in that direction uh, when, you, when, you're, when you're interacting with them and they're saying, oh, you know, I just want to write. I don't want to have to do any marketing. I don't want to have to do any of that, which, by the way, I'm totally sympathetic to uh, but, uh, that, that, that feeling. But um, how do you get people excited about the business side? Yeah, I'm ex uh, I am also very sympathetic to that um, because it was my own. That's where I, I started off, you know, um, and how we get them excited. We don't really have to do a lot. We just have to let them go through the process. So, you know, once you realize that this is what you're doing, then you begin to see the opportunities. You begin to kind of twig it. And I think it's an important moment when people realize I talked about the three hats that you wear, the, the creation the um, creative director, the manager, and the entrepreneur who kind of maximizes and grows the business. Those three hats are worn across the, the, the range of activities that you have to do. So while we have been quite polarized and, and, and had quite a dualistic um, idea of it, you know, that's the writing and that's the business and, that, you know, that's the marketing and there the twain shall meet. Actually, if you look at writing a book, there are aspects of writing books that are not creative at all and that actually require your managerial mind um, or your entrepreneurial mind to come in. You know, and there are aspects of business that are highly creative as well as so and, you know, creatives do business differently. And it is much digital micro business is actually a very simple business model. It's a very light business model. And the tools and technology that we have now make the managing and the entrepreneur side 
almost fun, but if not fun, certainly not a huge big deal. So you can actually, with relatively minimal amounts of time and effort, incorporate the sorts of of management tasks and um, that were once you know in conventional business extremely time consuming and extremely labor consuming so let's just take money management you know the kinds of programs that you have now where you just feed in your numbers and from the expenses and it, it kind of just pumps it out for you if you that kind of thing it's it's just so much easier to manage than it was before so how how we get them excited it's not really us that gets them excited it's the opportunities it's the potential it's and it's connecting when the penny drops that if I bring, you know, my words are not just the book. My words are also the tweet. They're also the Facebook update. They're also in my blog. They're in my explainer video. They're in, you know, and if I connect with a heart and soul kind of um, motivation that I had in the first place and bring that into the wider stuff, it stops being that awful marketing thing and becomes part of the message, the mission that you had in the first place when you sat down to write the book. And that's the moment when everything changes, when, when people realize that. Yeah, I've, got, I've got some questions to ask you about um, technology and, and the, the, this sort of uh, moment we're in and the potential future uh, for uh, microtransactions and things like that. Uh, but before I do that, I wanted to, you, you, you brought up something, one of the reasons or one of the activities that the Alliance of Independent Authors engages in is protecting authors from being exploited by uh, bad services and people listening might be familiar with I think it's it's becoming a bit of an outdated term now but vanity press um, uh, you know this was conventionally something that kind of preyed upon people's sense that being a published author elevated you in the social hierarchy and so if you if you felt like you couldn't get in through a conventional publishing business then you would pay a business to you know package up what you'd written and then put the name of what looked like a publishing company on it. And then voila, you could represent yourself as a published author. Uh, the thing that's always struck me about that is that what the, what the vanity press was offering you was pretty much the same thing that the genuine publishing company was offering you, which was uh, a sense that they can elevate you, that there is a social hierarchy and that, 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 that they are, what they're really offering you is the oppor opportunity to elevate you uh, in that, in that hierarchy. And so the, the sort of, the specter of the the evil vanity press is actually a projection of a person's own submission to that idea in the first place that becoming a published author makes you makes you higher in the social hierarchy and so the the reason the vanity the, the vanity press is seen as bad is because only the queen can make you a knight uh, you can't just knight yourself um, has this dynamic changed in the last few years with the rise of self publishing I mean one of the things that happened that that I've noticed is that you know you can you can make it's more likely that you can make a living if you're a self-published author now than it was in the past. Has this do you think this has I mean you talked about the tsunami of crap and things like that. I I've, I've you know read classics professors c complaining about the corruption of the stream uh because everything isn't Homer. Um <laughs> uh, which which also brings with it a sort of strange to to me kind of you know fiction that somehow there was a past in which there was no tsunami of crap which is just not true and a lot of crap is great uh, <laughs> in, its, in, its, in its own way yes. 
brilliant. Yeah. yeah. And things that are seen as crap at one time are seen as not crap later and things like that. And, and I guess anyway, yeah, going back to my question, you know, have things changed? Are, are, are people who thinking about becoming authors now more aware of the fact that actually like there's some it's it's not undignified to pursue your own path and be an independent author? Yeah, I, I definitely, without a doubt, we have a huge number, thousands of proud indie authors who, who wear that with, with great pride. There are still, you know, there is still a, a, a wide band of authors who say, no, I don't want to self-publish um, for all the reasons you're talking about. They want the validation more than they want the money and um, more than they want the the autonomy and and also, I would argue, because of buying into what you're talking about there, which is that mindset um, of the elevation thing. Um, you, so you either buy into that or you don't. And and then maybe it's easy for somebody like me who had it, you know, maybe it's easier once you once you have been given that tick to not care about it, you know. Um, but what we're seeing a lot of is a sort of a fluidity now that's happening whereby some of our members, they use a trade publisher for maybe a certain one title or they, you know, they self-publish for a while, they get approached, they go into trade publishing, but they come back out again or they, some of their titles are published, uh, trade published and some of them are self-published. And all of that to us is you are still an independent author if you see yourself as the creative director of the book. So I think the vanity term came up also because the seven processes of publishing that I was talking about weren't always that well done. Certainly, uh, the vanity publisher did not market your book for you in any meaningful way because the channels of distribution were closed off to them. They didn't, they, you know, they just didn't get into bookstores. Generally speaking, might get into a local store, but they weren't going to get into Barnes & Noble, say. Um, you know, that kind of thing. And, and that aspect of vanity remains where where the author you know vanity is not the right word but where the author is just kind of um wants to be published at all costs and doesn't think enough about the reader and what the reader wants you know um because really we're all in service to the reader um the, the authors the publishers everybody that's who we exist for and um so vanity in that sense is still can be alive and well in the self-publishing community as well as in these big services now the the worst of the big vanity publishers and there's one very notable name in in that sector and they their revenues are falling as people discover the better services so and as more information is available on the internet about who's good and who isn't and so on, um, there are fewer people falling prey to them now than before. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not uh, going to put words in your mouth, but um, there's one particular organization that I read about sometimes that's called Author Services, um, uh, That, uh, and I'm not making any particular claims about it other than what I've read on the blogs, but uh, there are companies that um, when they start getting a bad name, and this is not unique to the publishing industry or vanity press world, uh, they start setting up companies in other names under their own umbrella. Um, and they also 
it, it's 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 something to to be aware of that you may have heard about one thing one organization that maybe doesn't necessarily have your best interests at heart and then come across something with a different name and think you're safe uh but really before you get involved especially if you're going to do all the work of writing a book you know maybe have some dreams that are sort of hanging on on what you're doing uh take the time not only to read the contract uh but also to to look into who you're dealing with because um while scams aren't as widespread as some people like to set them out to be, uh, they are out there, uh, and and you want to do, you want to make, you want to protect yourself. Um, yes. If I might just say two th- two very practical things on that, you're absolutely right. And um, there are scams out there for sure. There, we have a rating where people can just look up um, a, and it's this is freely available to everybody. You don't have to be a member to have access to it. It's on our blog site at uh, setpublishingadvice.org forward slash ratings. And that just rates companies. So if you do come across it, you're absolutely right. They keep changing their names. So if you do come across a company, you can just check and see if it's there. If, if a company that you're potentially dealing with is not on the list, then you can write to us and ask us, do we know anything about them? And if we don't, we'll, we'll research them because we like to be on top of everybody. And there are just so many companies we can't stay on top without people informing us. And secondly, we do have a guidebook called uh, um, Choosing a Self-Publishing Service. And that uh, you know gives you what you need to know in order to evaluate any service and see, you know, is this doing what a good service does and, and the warning signs to look out for. You brought up uh, changing technologies uh, for and, and how they're, they're helping people uh, be more independent and run, run businesses because we have tools that can do things now that, you know, would have taken a, a team of people to do in the past. Uh, and this leads me to the next part of the interview where I wanted to uh, talk to you about self-publishing 3.0, uh, which, which is, uh, uh, I don't know exactly what to call it, a project. Uh, that the Alliance for Independent Authors is is undertaking now, um, and and particularly you've released a white paper about blockchain technology and how this might um, encourage micropayments that could change the landscape for people uh, for creatives going forward. Um, so that that's a lot to talk about. I was wondering if you could maybe just set it up. What what is the self publishing three initiative? Sure. Um, well, well, self-publishing 1.0, as we define it, was uh, desktop publishing um, and print-on-demand. So that was the first wave, if you like, where authors were able to move away. Essentially, printing presses were hugely expensive. That's why you had vanity presses to do. Uh, that's why you had corporate publishers. Only companies could afford printing presses. The average author couldn't. Um, desktop publishing changed that and um, print on demand was the first wave, if you like. And then the second wave came about 10 years ago when Amazon combined three things, which was the, a, a good e-reader and the biggest retail store in the world and a very innovative publishing model compared to what was there before. And those three things together just created, as we have said, the possibility of earning an income and building a business as an author. And now self-publishing 3.0, as we see it, is also setting up sustainable businesses and understanding their own, that they are in business and what that means and how they go about it, if you like. So, the Kindle gold rush mentality, which was just about, you know, I put my book up on Amazon, bang, I have a living. That isn't how it has worked out for most authors. And of course it isn't because it isn't a business either. It's a, it's another kind of literary lottery to, to kind of put all your eggs in that publishing basket. 
So self-publishing 3.0 is about guys, there are incredible opportunities for you. You can build a business. You can make a living doing what you love once you get the craft up. And by craft, I mean the writing craft, but also the business craft. Once you know what you're doing on those two fronts, you can. And here's how. So that, that's what the Self-Publishing 3.0 initiative is. It is completely and utterly facilitated by technology. It could not happen without digital tech. And the next wave of tech, which includes things like Voice First, but also, as you mentioned, the blockchain, there are there's potential embedded here. There are opportunities here. And it very much depends on author confidence as to whether we will actually avail of those opportunities. But if we were to actually stand up and recognize what's possible here, we could, for the very first time um, in history, have a creator-led model here, um, whereby the author gets paid first, um, which just doesn't happen anywhere else. The author gets paid last at the moment in, in the publishing stream, aside from the advance, of course, but advances are dwindling. So, yeah, as you say, there's a huge amount in this topic and I can really only touch on it, but it's important, very, very important. And again, it's all about that mindset change. You mentioned authors get paid last, uh, which uh, brought to mind um, to me, there have been a few, there are always scandals, but there have been a few pretty high profile scandals in the last few months um, where very legitimate um, and well-known agencies and agents have been discovered to have been uh, not necessarily passing along everything to authors. I interviewed Chris Rush for this podcast a little while ago, and she she obviously has a lot to say about that. And I'll, I'll put links in the transcription to all the things that we're, that we're talking about here so people can find these great resources. Um, and so, as I understand it, the idea of using... Um, the blockchain to help give authors more priority in the, in this just very straightforward, well, what ought to be a very straightforward world of, you know, the money going from one place to another, the role the blockchain can play is that um, since with things like Ethereum, you can actually have smart contracts um, where all kinds of complicated things can happen at the, the very moment that a transaction happens. One thing that you can do is you can actually write into the code for the transaction that um, this mo- this proportion of the money will go to this account, this proportion of the money will go to this account, and this proportion of the money will go to this account. So instead of someone at a bookstore selling your book and then getting that money and then maybe passing some of it along uh, you know, to the publisher and then that publisher maybe passing some of it along, perhaps even to your agent first, and then maybe your agent passing it along to you at the point of sale, you know, when the that I don't. I guess they don't use registers anymore so much. But when the sort of bell goes off on the register with some with blockchain technology, the idea and smart contracts, the idea is that actually the money could instantly go into the wallet where it's supposed to go. Is that is that more or less what you're what you're saying? The opportunity is for blockchain yes. and authors. Yes, and and the fact that the the everything that happens can be written into the smart contract and that is visible to everybody and. What has been, you know, called trust agents can be removed. The technology becomes the trust agent. So you don't need lawyers. You don't need agents. You don't need, you just need the fact that this is transparent and out there and um, and the features of the blockchain just make it possible for these things to happen in a way that they couldn't before. And of course, 
publishers are thinking about this and publishing services are thinking about this. And so we wanted to make sure authors were thinking about it because I think we underestimate our power. I think we very much underestimate the fact that without us, none of this would happen. Everybody really needs us, you know, and okay, they haven't needed us so much when you had only a tiny bit of shelf space and far more authors, you know, wanting that space than there was space for. But we're in a different place now. You know, we've moved from a situation of scarcity into a situation of abundance and it, it is it's different rules and Authors, yeah, we, we just want to make sure that people understand what's possible. Uh, it's interesting, um, you know, for anyone listening who might be skeptical about the impact that technology can have on a, a writer's life. If it's true that it can get rid of the lawyers, uh, maybe that'll help convert uh, convert some people to the tech tech side of things and the potential there. Sorry, that was that was an easy lawyer joke. Um, uh, moving on to the the last part of the interview, I wanted to talk to you about some of the things that are happening in the book publishing world nowadays. Um, uh, I had an experience about five years ago. I went to the BEA or Book Expo America in New York uh, in 2013. I think it's called just Book Expo now. And I remember there was, as I recall, there was one panel one rather random panel on self-publishing. Um, and uh, at this panel, Guy Kawasaki spoke about how he, you know, approached a publisher about his latest book and the publisher had said, well, how many Twitter followers do you have? And he said, well, you know, over a million, you know, pretty well known. And he said, great, that's going to be fantastic for you to use that to help sell your book. And he said, you know, well, what are you, what are you going to do for me? Um, and uh, anyway, I think I read in something that you wrote recently that, that there's still a kind of mere self-publishing ghetto at at these conferences and that book expo in particular is actually still kind of keeping out independent authors in this stuff is that true oh totally totally um, book expo had a um an independent author stream called you publish you which they got rid of um two years ago just and they have absolutely zilch interest in self-publishing beyond they have a, a rather sad area where authors can buy a table for I think it's five or six hundred dollars or more maybe and uh, think that they're going to you know you never get an author buying it in the second year round shall we say because it is it is pre pretty much useless um, a nice networking with other authors in the group that have also been uh, you know paid that amount of money just to be there but there is no facility there is no nothing there that is of interest to the self-publishing author anymore so we don't go to BEA now at all we don't attend and um, unless you are a celebrity author brought along by your publisher there really isn't any any point in an author attending BEA some of the some of the fairs are better than others. London is actually good, um, but the others are really yeah they're very much because they are trade fairs, you know, and publishers pay for the space, and because of the business model there is around them, they're just not very friendly spaces for authors. No, um, if for people who uh, follow the kind of publishing sections of the newspapers. Um, uh, they might have heard, particularly in the UK, reports of an author earnings crisis. Um, is there, is, in your opinion, is there an author earnings crisis happening in, in the UK? This is exactly what our, our all-party committee was on this morning. It was an inquiry into author earnings and, and based on that research. So that was a piece of research that didn't interview a lot of writers. And, and you know, I would say there 
is always an author earnings crisis in the, in, you know, in the sense that authors for their level of education and commitment and work don't get paid well enough in the main. So you've got a few celebrity authors who make a lot of money and then you've got the vast bulk of, of authors who make and um, are lucky if they make a living and then you've got a, a big long tail of authors who make almost nothing and and that's been the case I don't think there was ever a golden age where that wasn't true uh, but I do think that there was more of a mid list you know you could make a living as a fiction writer um, advances were particularly in, in North America I think um, because of the economies of scale and, and so on but um, now I think it's all about authors in in business, authors realizing they they are the rights holder. They own their own intellectual property. And so there is a crisis for people in the trade publishing sector, I think. Um, advances are shrinking. Discounts are fierce on the high street. Nobody um, in trade publishing is making a lot of money, um, you know, Sometimes authors feel it's the big bad publishers and they're, you know, they're cleaning up at authors' expense. It isn't really like that. We've got a, a business model that's very, it's tough to make money. Now they do, and, you know, it's, 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 it's thriving. The sector is, is thriving. We've got a self-publishing sector that is also thriving. And we have a number of authors. It excites me how many authors are now able to make a living from their writing. And you can be earning um, six figures without ever appearing on a bestseller list. You can just by having enough books. And, you know, I think some research, I forget the company that did the research not long ago. And they found that there was this, um, a significant sector of authors like that. And then, of course, you have the fact that, you know, one third of authors now on bestseller on the um, digital retail platforms are self-published and so on. So from where I'm looking, and this is what I was talking about today, it's looking optimistic um, with the growth in audiobooks, with new territories coming on stream, with new platforms. Uh, the platforms are getting better and better and the ways in which we can reach our readers are getting more interesting and with Voice First coming as well. There is a lot for authors to be very optimistic about. Uh, speaking of how hard it can sometimes be to make money, um, what do you think is going on at Barnes & Noble? Poor Barnes & Noble, yeah. Um I wouldn't hazard a guess uh, of what's going on there um, in the sense that I um, every guess I made before was wrong. <laughs> so I don't know what's going on in there. I really, really would love to see Barnes & Noble get its act together. Uh, I think if it was to go, I, I'm not, obviously I'm passionate about independent publishing and and so on. But I also want to see books um, physically in our space. You know, I want I want want us to to have bookstores in our communities. And I think the key for the way I'd like to address your question really is I think the key for physical bookstores is to harness the writer. 
and writing, you know, and the huge growth in the interest in writing, both as in the published word, but also writing for self, you know, among the best products that sell in a bookstore are notebooks, uh, which has always kind of intrigued me slightly. And I, I think there is real room for writing events and, you know, the bookstore to become part of a much wider literary sort of, and we see that to some, to some degree, bookstores that are doing really well with, with author events, but I'm talking about taking it another step and thinking about self-publishing and thing, and rather than seeing authors who self-publish as a threat, and because a lot of people in the traditional publishing sector and the book selling sector do see that. And sometimes independent authors have to take the brunt of their feelings about Amazon in particular, but their fears around what is happening at the moment, rather than, you know, giving into that. I think if we could actually get readers and writers together and make the bookstore the locus for that connection, I think that's a way forward for the physical bookstore. Uh, my last question, I guess, would be about uh, your way forward. Um, you've got something called the Go Creative series that you're working on. And I was just wondering if you could give us a little bit of uh, information about what that is and where people can go to find out more. Thank you uh, very much. Yeah, uh, the Go Creative series is for creative entrepreneurs like authors, but also other um, creatives who are fired in a similar way by passion. So who are running passion power businesses of all kinds. And um, so they might be educators or healers or activists or uh, we have much more in, as independent authors. We have much more in common with such um, creative entrepreneurs than we actually have with authors who go through the traditional system. But a lot of us find we are in business by default and we're not business minded and we don't understand what it is to sort of be in creative business. So this nine book series is actually it's taking nine books to actually explain that because there is a mindset transition that needs to happen. And so the books are very hands on. There are books that you do as well as read. They're full of exercises. And it is essentially about that idea that we discussed earlier about bringing your full creative capacity to the business of making a living doing what you love and and hopefully showing a way that people can do that well thank you very much for that great description and thank you for uh agreeing to do this interview i really enjoyed it and i i really love it when people uh are up for covering a lot of ground uh and uh don't hesitate at all to answer the the questions that can be uh you know difficult on a number of levels including politically so i very much wanted to say i uh, thank you for that uh and yeah, thank you very much for, for all of your work. And I'll make sure to link to the Go Creative series and to the Alliance of Independent Authors uh, in the transcription for this interview. That's fantastic. And thank you. I really enjoyed it as well. Nothing like a good chat. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Okay. Take care.